the book we're listening to at meals is called to love by Carl Anderson and Jose Granados, which was one of the foundational texts when I was in grad school. And, uh, I haven't heard it or listened to it or read it in a long time. This afternoon, something that struck me was when I was starting to reflect on original experiences in the context of the original experiences of Adam and Eve in the garden and, and how everything was new, like everything was wonder. Like an original experience is something where like, shh, this is new. And it makes an impression on my heart. It makes an impression on my life. And so there's this experience of wonder that Adam has as he's exploring the world and recognizing that he's not like anything in the world. He's more like the Lord than the world. And it just evokes this feeling of wonder. And he made this statement that, you know, when we're children, we're closer to those original experiences than when we're adults. When we're adults, we kind of, like, things happen, life happens. Um, Things that should provoke wonder kind of become boring. Um, We forget to recognize what our Lord is doing in our lives each day. Um, And he talks about Gabriel Marcel using this image of we become administrators of our lives, just kind of, like, pushing papers around and it sounds kind of like being the family life office director. Um, and, we, and we forget to notice the beauty of what our Lord is doing. And, and the reality that our Lord continues to enter into our life the same way that he did once when we were children. And that there's an opportunity to experience him as new. And so when we read scripture, there are like certain scenes and certain characters and conversions that we see happen that these characters experience as original experiences. And there's two from the beginning of John's gospel that I want to reflect on this afternoon because they both have to do with overcoming obstacles to love. And those obstacles, the particular obstacles, are very common obstacles in our lives. Like one is shame, and the other is a kind of sloth, a kind of spiritual sloth that keeps us stuck. And so the first is this encounter that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. It's chapter 4, starting at verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. And so this woman comes to the well in the middle of the day. It's about noon. It's not the normal time 
that people would go to a well. Usually they would go in the morning when it was cooler and kind of get their water for the day. She goes in the middle of the day when nobody's there. Because she doesn't want to run into anybody. It reminds me of when I was in my depression in the Casa Santa Maria, and I would sign up for sack lunches. Um, but I would sort of wait until, like, I wouldn't run into anybody, and I would go down to the basement and, like, through the basement into the back area of the kitchen, get my sack lunch, and then make it back up on the elevator and into my room again before I could run into anybody. Mostly because I was really depressed and I wasn't doing my work. And I was passing myself off as doing my work. And I didn't want to run into anybody who would ask me a question like, how's your work going? Because then I would just lie. And so I had shame. And that shame led me to try to like kind of manage my life in a way that I don't have to be around people. And that's what this woman is doing. She's managing her life in a way that she doesn't have to be around people. And then Jesus asks her for a drink, and then she protests that you're not supposed to be asking me this question. It's almost um, abrasive, the way she says it. You know, how could you, a Jew, ask me for a Samaritan for a drink? Like, I hope if I ask this in the snarkiest way possible, he's going to leave and not talk to me anymore. And then he responds, if you knew the gift of God who is saying, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then she says, you don't even have a bucket. <laughs> so this whole talk is better given by this black sermon that I heard, this black pastor that I heard once. So anyway, um, You don't even have a bucket. And the cistern is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? And Jesus answers her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so I can give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. And you'll never have to come back to this well again. And you'll never have to experience the shame of coming here in the middle of the day again. Sir, give me this water always. Okay, I want that. And then he says this to her, go call your husband and come back. Which is an interesting response. Because in reality, what Jesus is going to say to her is, you know, she says, I don't have a husband. No, you don't have one husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And so he ends up speaking directly into the thing that she's most ashamed of. Speaking directly into the thing she's most ashamed of. And I sort of imagine this woman, like, at first her response to Jesus is, well, you should really get away from me. I'm going to try to provoke you so that you leave me alone. Then Jesus offers her more and more and more. And maybe she thinks, well, maybe he doesn't really know about me. And I'm going to play this off. Give me this water always. Go get your husband. 
go get the thing you're most ashamed of, bring it to me, and then you can have this water that you'll never thirst again. And then she says, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus says, believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the anointed. When he comes, he will tell us everything. And then Jesus says, I am the one. I am he, the one who is speaking with you. And then his disciples return, and the woman leaves her water jar and goes to the town and says to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I have done. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And she goes and she becomes a prophet or an evangelizer to everybody else in that town. And so she has this kind of original experience of our Lord speaking love into that part of her life that she's most ashamed of. Of our Lord saying to her, if you want what I have to offer, bring me the thing that you're most ashamed of. And one of the obstacles that sets in in our lives and our hearts as we get older is the obstacle of the things that we're ashamed of from our past. There are those events in our life where we say, ah, but if... If people really knew this about me, they wouldn't love me. Sometimes they're the sins that we've confessed, but we haven't allowed ourselves yet to receive mercy. We haven't allowed ourselves to be this sinner who encounters our Lord in a true and profound way. St. John of the Cross says that the first stage in the spiritual life is to be a sinner who needs mercy that encounters mercy. Then we enter into the purgative way. Then we enter into the illuminative way and the unitive way. But the first stage is to be a sinner who encounters mercy. And sometimes we can have a kind of academic 
conversion where we know we were living a bad life, then we decided to change our life, and now we're going to be different. But we didn't receive mercy. I once asked a focused missionary, tell me your conversion story. And he said, well, I grew up in a family where we weren't catechized very well. Then I went to college and I read a Peter Kreef book, and now I'm virtuous. Like, was Jesus there anywhere? (laughs) Like, were you lost and then found? Did Jesus do something? Did he enter into your life and change everything? Or did you kind of read a book and change your philosophy of life and decide to live differently? Because if that's all it is, then how we tend to live our life is in a way that protects our history from people. Or we live our life condemning who we used to be in our head. Instead of being grateful for the way that our Lord has transformed us. And so if we find ourselves in that place where the obstacle to wonder is shame... we can right now enter into that experience of the Samaritan woman and recognize that our Lord says to us right now, I will give you living water, and whoever drinks this water will never thirst. will never long for anything again. And what she experiences is she experiences being known completely for the first time. And not just to be known, but to be known and loved. And our Lord gives her this experience that allows her to have insight into his experience of being loved by the Father. And that comes out more clearly in what our Lord says later on. So in the next chapter, chapter 5, our Lord cures someone on the Sabbath. And it says this, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem at the Sheep Gate a pool in Hebrew called Bethesda with five porticos, and these lay a large number of ill, blind, lame, and crippled. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? He's in this, he's laying there for 38 years, he's been sick. And he's right at this pool where people go and they're put into the pool. And when they're put into the pool, they're healed. But he's never made it into the pool for 38 years. What keeps him from getting into the pool? So Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? And the way I hear that in my head is like, do you even want to get better? What are you doing? And the sick man answers, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am on my way, somebody else gets down there before me. So I sort of imagine him thinking to himself, okay, today's the day. I'm going to take that step. And he gets up and he starts to walk towards the pool. Somebody else walks towards the pool. Oh, that person's sicker than me. I'll let him go ahead. And he goes back down where he was. And that's that kind of sloth, which is an inability to move. Like an inability to move forward. Or a reluctancy to move forward. And he has this excuse, like, nobody else is here to help me. So he becomes complacent being sick. And that's a pattern that shows up in a lot of people's spiritual lives. You know, I feel like there's something I could do, there's something more I could do, but, uh, you know, it's going to be really hard. Or I know I need to take that step to go to confession, to find a spiritual director. But there's other people who need a spiritual director more than me, and they're really busy. Like, I hear that's, like, one of the top excuses for people not growing in their spiritual life is spiritual directors are too busy already. They don't have time for me. Other people need them more than I do. And there can be a complacency in staying stuck. Or the question of, do we ask our Lord to heal our hearts? Do we ask him for what we need? And sometimes I'll ask people, like, are you praying for yourself, for your conversion? Well, Father, I pray for everybody else but I don't pray for me because that would be selfish. But it's not selfish to like try to grow in our own relationship with our Lord. And we believe our Lord is God, right? That's what St. John has been saying over and over and over again, that Jesus is the Son of God. And if he's the Son of God, then he has infinite love And he has infinite reach. And he can heal all of you. He can heal the whole world. And so as, you know, he's been in this pattern of getting up to go to the pool, but somebody else gets there before him and thinking, oh, I guess I'm just, you know, it's not meant for me. Our Lord just enters into his life. 
And he simply says to him, rise, take up your mat and walk. And immediately he gets up, takes up his mat and walks, and he's healed. Because our Lord entered into his life in a new way. And breaks him out of that complacency. Sort of breaks him out of that slothfulness. And for him, part of the dialogue was for him to verbalize You know, do you want to be well? Well, like, I try, but everybody else beats me to it. So I sit here. And then our Lord says, you don't have to sit there. Get up. Take up your mat and walk. And he's filled with this wonder. Because our Lord notices him. Our Lord notices him. Probably his experience was, all these people are walking by and they don't notice me. People walk by, they can see that I'm struggling. Everybody knows I've been here for 38 years, but nobody notices me. And then our Lord is the first one that notices them. And it awakens in him that desire for healing. And then he's able to respond. And so this particular healing then brings this controversy towards our Lord. Because that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. He answers, the man who made me well told me, take up your mat and walk. They asked him, who is the man who told you? Take it up and walk. The man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away. And since there was a crowd there, after this, Jesus found him in the temple area and said to him, look, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went and told the Jews that Jesus was the one who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he did this on a Sabbath. Jesus answered, my father is at work until now, so I am at work. For this reason, the Jews tried all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he also called God his own father making himself equal to God. And so here, St. John makes this transition to focusing on our Lord's fidelity in the midst of division. Our Lord's fidelity in the midst of division. And these are the words that he recalls Jesus saying. Amen, amen, I say to you, a son cannot do anything on his own, 
but only what he sees his father doing. For what he does, his son will do also. For the father loves his son and shows him everything that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, so that you may be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives life, so also does the son give life to whomever he wishes. Nor does the father judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to his son, so that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not come to condemnation, but has passed from death to life. Amen, amen, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he gave to his Son the possession of life in himself. And he gave him power to exercise judgment because he is the son of man. And so when our Lord is persecuted, when our Lord is criticized, when our Lord faces this kind of division in his own life, his response is immediately to refer back to the father and his relationship to the father. He knows who he is as the son. The reason he's able to enter into the life of this sick person, the reason he was able to enter into the life of the Samaritan woman is because he knows who he is. Because it's what he sees the father doing. And he does whatever he sees the father doing. And as he heals, and as he cures, and as he enters into the life of sinners, he invites them into the same relationship with the Father. Later on in the same gospel, Jesus will say, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Everything that's been handed over to him by the Father, he then hands on to his disciples. And he calls each of us to have the same kind of relationship with him that he has with the Father. And so the goal of the Christian life is to come to know what it means to be sons and daughters. To know what it means to entrust everything to him. To know what it means for him to enter into our hearts. in order to make them new again.
And his desire is to do that again and again and again and again. His desire is that we can encounter him in a new way. Even now. Now, every time we come before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, we come before the same Jesus who entered into the world 2,000 years ago. The same Jesus who had that dialogue with the woman at the well. The same Jesus who healed this crippled man who had been lying there for 38 years. The same Jesus who went to the cross and died so that we could live. And this is a space where we can learn what it means to be loved by him. It's a space where we can come to encounter him in a new way. Just as we are right now. You know, I once I asked somebody, you know, like, what does it mean that we believe that the Eucharist is Jesus? Well, it means that we believe that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Okay, so if that's true, what does that mean about you? Right, that's how relationships work, right? That's how every relationship works. If it's true that it's the same Jesus on the altar, what does that mean about us? You know, it means that the second person of the Holy Trinity, who is always with the Father in a communion of life and love, and was perfectly content to be a communion of life and love with the Father, took a human nature to himself so that he could experience everything that we experience except for sin. So that he could suffer, that he would experience the consequence of every sin that was ever committed by every person in his body, and that he would offer his body as a sacrifice in order to restore us to communion with the Father. But before he did that, he took a piece of bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So that he would remain with his church in this way until the end of time. So that he could be present even now. So that we could gaze upon him. And if all that is true, then that means that we are infinitely and incredibly lovable. You 
It means that we are infinitely and incredibly lovable. If our Lord did all of those things, then there's no space in my heart to say that I don't deserve it. There's no space in my heart to say he probably loves everybody else, but me, uh. there's no space for that. That's what St. John was saying in his first letter that we talked about this morning when he says, if we don't admit that we're sinners and that we need our Lord, we make our Lord a liar. You know, those two things can't be true. When we struggle to surrender our hearts to his love, it's oftentimes because of those things like shame over past sins or fear because of past wounds. Or a kind of spiritual sloth or asadia. Where we kind of just are complacent because we think everybody else has bigger needs than we do. But our Lord continues to present himself to us so that we can come to know him in a new way. So that we can come to know him in a profound way. So that we can have that experience of him right now entering into our life. And calling us to move forward. And so this afternoon, I'd invite you to, just as you spend time with our Lord, to allow him to speak to you as if for the first time. So if he says to you, bring me your husband, what is he asking you to bring him? Asking you to bring him your college experiences, asking you to bring him things that you keep secret, asking you to bring him your addictions, your resentments, the fact that you secretly like watching Grey's Anatomy, whatever it is, right? Like, what is he asking you to bring him? So that you can experience him saying to you, like, I will give you what you're looking for. Or as you sit here and he says to you, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? 
And maybe like the person in scripture, you can bring him all of your excuses. I don't have time. I'm really busy. I'm taking care of all my children. Other people have bigger needs than I have. My problems aren't that bad. And then let him respond to you. In whatever way he says to you, just get up and walk. Like, I noticed you. You could look for other places in this first section of John's Gospel. Chapter 8 is the woman caught in adultery. Where our Lord just bends down and writes in the sand. Because it was a way of entering into her life, entering into her line of sight. And just pray for the grace to experience our Lord as he notices you as if for the first time. And recognize that he's calling you right now into a deeper intimacy with him. During this time of prayer, we'll also have confessions um, in the back confessionals for anybody who wants to go to confession or take time to talk. You know, a lot of you have gone to confession, so there'll, there'll be time to have a longer confession if needed. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of reflecting on your great love. We ask you to banish from our hearts just all spirits of shame, all spirits of sloth, Just all spirits of insecurity or anything that keeps us from experiencing you and encountering you. We ask you to reveal yourself to us in a way that we can understand. As we sit with you this afternoon, help us to notice the way that you notice us. to come to know your look of love so that we might come to know ourselves as your children. That we may know the peace and the joy and the grace of abiding in you. At every moment and every day of our lives.